Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. Welcome to church. My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. And so, yeah, again, we're... uh excited to be walking through the epistle of James. And so uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and get there or scroll in your app. We're going just through the uh, couple of verses that Jana just read for us this morning. So James 1, 9 to 11 is where we're going to be uh, today. This is the third sermon out of uh, the, the letter to J- that James wrote, and it's uh, the third out of about 16 weeks. And so we're going to uh, continue journeying through. And so the way you break up scripture when it comes to sermons, it just lends itself to you have to let the text do the work. We, if you look in your Bible, you'll see how things are broken up into blocks. But that didn't come around until around the 13th century. So letters and, well, letters are there, but the numbers and the verses and so on. That was around the 13th century when that happened. So uh, we have to make decisions on how much text you cover based on the context and how much you can actually, you know, get done in a reasonable amount of time. And so we're just going to do these three verses. And so thank you all for joining us today here in Green Lake as we lean into God's word again uh, to seek not only to see what it says, but uh, God's desire for how he wants us to live in this world. And so let's, let's pray once more and then we'll jump in. Father, uh, we come to you gathered specifically in the name of Jesus, knowing that you promise to dwell among us as we do so. We ask your spirit now to move. Please don't let me just preach another sermon or for the congregation to just sit through another sermon as though it was common or usual. We pray that we would not yawn in the face of your word, but that you would quicken our spirit. Would you awaken us to see you for all that you're willing to reveal about yourself? So would you bring passion, healing, bring change, bring revival, bring repentance, bring your spirit and your work in us now through the very word that you have inspired. We love you. We love your word And we thank you that you loved us first. We pray all these things in the perfect, matchless, unrivaled name of Jesus. Amen. All right, church. Well, uh, this morning I woke up uh, feeling very much so uh, needy and dependent. (laughs) I don't know if anybody else kind of woke up feeling that way, but I just did, uh, feeling very needy. As a pastor... That's just a man. <laughs> I, I, I don't have anything in of myself to give you today. Um, but Jesus does. And he loves you. And he walks among us right now, regardless of where you might be in your faith. If you have faith, if you don't, if you're standing on a mountaintop or in a valley this morning, the man of sorrows walks among us today, sees you as you are, loves you where you are, whether you're in step with the Spirit or as far in the back country as a prodigal son. This morning, the Son of God looks on you and says that he loves you, he embraces you, he extends kindness and forgiveness and peace. And so it's with that we begin to walk through God's Word. Um, as you heard Jana read a moment ago, we've got a pretty challenging passage before us. Um, 
being that when we read scripture, we're not reading mere moralistic suggestions um, or a few niceties that we should consider doing, but rather when we read scripture, especially as Christians, when we honor the sacred scriptures, we see these as commandments that James, the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is giving us a command like that you read with Moses or one of the prophets, the thus saith the Lord stuff. A commandment is this, when God says something to human beings that are made in his image and likeness, he says, this is the thing I'm requiring of you. I'm holding you accountable to fulfilling this or denying this particular thing. Whether it's something he wants you to commit or something to omit, a command comes down from God and we are responsible, held accountable by God for the things that God has to say about his will for us in the world. That's, that's what a commandment is. And so each time, perhaps you've read your Bible, each time we encounter a command in scripture, we find that we lack the power, the ability, and oftentimes even the desire to obey the command given. Does anybody resonate with that? Going, when you read a commandment, going, I lack the power to do that, the desire to do that, and even really the ability to do that, okay? I'm born as a sinful human being. My nature is hostile towards God. My will is not God's. My will is for me and myself, and that's really all there is to it. So when I read a commandment like, love your enemy, or be generous, or be kind, or be forgiving, you go, I don't have the power in and of myself to do that. I'm selfish. I'm proud. I, I think about me and myself only. Anybody do that? You know, yeah, 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 yeah. So how do you do the commands then? At what point do the commandments not become burdensome? And it's only in the context of the gospel itself. That is, when you go to English class, you remember you get the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicatives is this, is, is said, the, and this is the imperative. This is what must be done. And when it comes to the gospel, we must ground all the commandments that God gives us in light of the, the gospel itself and not just a, a command that, that is divorced from the gospel. Does that make sense? That when God says, I want you to be generous, I want you to be forgiving, he doesn't do so and leave you powerless to do, but rather because of who Jesus Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished in the giving of the Holy Spirit to us, we now can say with St. John and 1 John where he says, his commandments are no longer burdensome to us. So how do the commandments become a joy to us? It's by walking in the Spirit, by understanding who we are in Christ and receiving our identity in him. That's the only way. You know why we get exhausted as Christians? because we tend to not remember that the commands come in the context of this thing called good news. We start relating to God, the Father, as a CEO, Jesus as a cop rather than our big brother that wants to help, and the Spirit as just a mere thing that convicts us and tells us we're wrong, but doesn't actually comfort us, empower us, and equip us to live out this Christian life. So today we're looking at some commandments, but before I can tell you the commandments, I have to tell you the good news of the gospel, otherwise we'll walk out of here just trying to be better people. And the gospel is not try to be a good person. It's not. It's not. That's not good news. Does that sound good to any of you that woke up selfish today? Be a good person. Like, dang it. No, no, that's not good news. The gospel is this, that God is good and God loves and saves sinners. 
That's good news. So let me just remind you very quickly of what the gospel is before we look at the commandments. First, when you open the Bible, it does not begin in Genesis chapter 3. We're a bunch of sinners and fallen, wretched, and rebelling against God. Where does the Bible begin? In the beginning, not you, not me, God. In the beginning, God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit creates all things under his sovereign will, out of his own will, his own word. He, ex nihilo, brought the universe into being by his creative power. Then when God created you, he did not create you because he was bored. God did not create you because he needed friends. God did not create you because he was needy or lonely. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were in perfect harmony. And then out of overflowing love in that community, God brought us into being. Wow. The gospel begins with a good God that he did not create us out of necessity, but out of desire that if you woke up today, God wills you to be alive right now. It's God's will that you're alive God's not regretting you. God's not scowling at you. God wills your life right now. The breath in our lungs is from the God of the universe who wills you to exist in this moment. Awesome. God creates and gives us a command to not eat from the tree. And if we did, we would die. We would face just, holy, righteous accountability. Adam and Eve rebelled, representing humankind, taking the fruit, eating the fruit. Sin comes into the world, and now everything is broken, fractured, damaged, and and condemned. We didn't become less image bearers of God, but we did become marred. But the gospel (laughs) comes on the scene. When God found Adam and Eve in their sin, he sacrificed an animal, covered their nakedness, pointing to the one day that when Jesus would come on the scene and there's the next scene in the right creation, fall, redemption. Jesus comes on the scene, born of the Virgin Mary, lives a sinless life, walked on the earth, raising the dead, forgiving sinners, reconciling mankind to God, fulfills all of the Old Testament law, every commandment. Jesus delighted in it. When Jesus read his Old Testament, it was like honey on his lips. He loved God's law perfectly, obeyed it flawlessly, then went to Calvary on Good Friday, died our death in our place for our sins, that we could become the righteousness of God, that when Jesus died, he did not die because he was a sinner. Jesus died in the place of us, the sinners. And then Jesus triumphantly resurrected from the grave. Jesus conquering Satan and demons and hell and all the mistakes and all the wrong turns that we've made with our lives. Jesus now rises from the grave. Jesus ascended at Pentecost back, right? Sends, goes back to the right hand of the Father, sends the Holy Spirit into the world, into the church, to all who would have faith, who would call on him. He would send the Spirit to regenerate us and to make us the children of God. God, once and for all, that's good news, that your salvation is secure, you're the children of God, you're the apple of his eye. In Jeremiah 30, he calls you his darling children. First John 4 says you are his beloved, that God delights in you. Like, why? I'm not good. That's right, but God is, and God is making you 
more and more like Jesus. And the more and more you become like Jesus, the bigger and bigger the grin on the face of the Father becomes. Isn't that great? And that he's not only just given us a spirit and the word of God, but he's given us each other. Even when we're faithless, even when we're selfish, we've got each other. That's so good. So there's some of the gospel. All right. So it's in light of the gospel that we get commandments going. So I want you to live like this. Okay? So we have a response to this good God. So let's walk it through these three verses. James is writing, by the way, in chapter 1, verse 1, he just tells us that he's writing to uh, the 12 tribes scattered in the dispersion. The dispersion is simply this. The early Christians in Jerusalem had been run out. They've been persecuted, and they've fled, and they were living all throughout the Roman Empire, but primarily, most of them had landed in the modern-day country of Syria, and they were facing severe persecution, not only because of their religious beliefs, but they, they, they also received no assistance from the government either. They were just a band of rebels. And so Christians were gathering in homes, worshiping Jesus. And James, the younger half-brother, writes this epistle to these Christians. The vast majority of them were, were very much so economically impoverished. And you say, why? Why were, why were they so poor? Well, Part of it had to do, the majority of it had to do with the fact that when you show up in the Roman Empire, part of what was customary for us, it's kind of like when you wipe your feet, when you walk into someone's house, you take your shoes off, you wipe your, right, to not track mud in. It was customary to show up at work and you have to honor the gods at certain guilds, whether it's blacksmith or, or, or in textile or, or wherever. When you show up, you honor the god of that local neighborhood, but Christians wouldn't do that. And it stood out going, oh, you guys are just walking into clock into work. You, you need to tip your hat to the gods. And the Christians are like, I'm not doing that. It's like, well, then you're not working here. It was like that. So that's why most of them were so poor. And so they leaned on each other. And so then you start reading like in the book of Acts, the first two chapters, three, four chapters of Acts. Remember what it says? They had all things in common. And we're like, wow, that's so awesome. Why do they have all things in common? What was it? Well, they leaned on each other. I, I, they, they won't hire me at the, at the blacksmith guild today. I, I, I can't work because I won't salute their gods and I won't reverence Caesar. And so life became very hard. But they were willing to suffer and then abide together. That's why they have everything in common. So this is, this is one of those communities that James is, is talking about and talking to and so James opened his letter with saying, count it all joy when you meet various trials. And now he moves into addressing wealthy and poor people. And he goes and circles back to wealthy and poor people again and again in his gospel letter. There's a few wealthy people in the congregation. It wasn't strictly poor people, but the majority of James' recipients were And so James is asking the church to do some real introspection, some real reflection on how they see themselves in light of what they do and they, what, what they do and don't possess financially. And so God is speaking to us in his word, saying, I want you to think about how you approach, how you see yourself and others, and how money does and does not factor into that. 
And this is why it's so important that we keep the gospel before our, our eyes and on our minds and in our hearts. The pure gospel. Because there are some goofy theologies surrounding our finances. Perhaps you've heard them. There's a goofy poverty theology that says, I, look at how poor I am, therefore God loves me. Does God love poor people? Yes. Does God love you because you're poor? No. No. There's a goofy prosperity theology that says, look how much God loves me, look how much money I have. What's wrong with that? Does God ever tell you to look at your bank account and say, look at your bank account and then, to, and then look at, make a, a judgment on where I stand in relation to how I feel about you? No. Poverty theology is not the answer. Prosperity theology, poverty gospel, prosperity gospel. These are not the gospel. The gospel is not, we're not to derive our understanding of the gospel based on what we do and don't have. That we look to Jesus as our righteousness. Jesus is the good news, not our bank accounts. And so that's what the gospel writers and the, and the epistles have to keep telling us over and over again is wherever you look for your righteousness. And we're going, it's Jesus, it's Christ, it's Christ alone. And that's so important as you think about how you see yourself in the family of God. Let the lowly brother, James writes, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So when James speaks of the lowly brother, he's not talking about somebody who is merely poor in spirit. That we're not intended to over-spiritualize this. He's talking about people who live in extreme poverty. People who are suffering day by day due to the fact that they cannot make ends meet. This is the believer who finds him or herself in very humble circumstances. So in the early church and throughout the world today, there are millions and millions who fall into this category called lowly brothers and sisters. In fact, in the first century, Christianity spread primarily among the poor and uneducated and the outcasts. It was not a religion for Ivy League grads, people sporting the nicest clothing, living in the nicest neighborhoods and having all the bells and whistles in life. But rather, Christianity spread among the least of these. And still does. And so there's something that we ought to hone in on right here and be reminded again this morning that, it, that the family of God is united together not by socioeconomic standing. And the church is not merely an organization that people pay their dues to in order to belong. That the church is the bride of Christ purchased by Jesus himself. So James calls for the lowly brother or sister to boast in, in, in his exaltation. So if you just pause there on that word boast, it means to express an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy. <laughs> so James wants the poor brother to do the last thing in the world that would come natural to anyone in humble circumstances, and that is to boast. Like, he desires the person in poverty, the Christian in poverty, to get to the place where he or she boldly expresses an unusually high degree of confidence in their exaltation. And so on the surface, you ask, in what way is the poor brother supposed to boast? <laughs> and the answer is right there in the same verse. Let the lowly 
brother boast. He's not talking to impoverished unbelievers. He's talking to poor people who have looked at Jesus and found their righteousness in him. He's talking to a church. They're called brothers. And though they are despised in the world and rejected by so many, they're called to a place of boasting in their exaltation. So don't hear him uh, downplaying humankind's suffering and trying to say, just don't think about it. Just ignore the fact that you're going through something hard. But rather, he's calling the poor believers to own their truest identity and to go about boasting in the fact that though they are suffering in the here and now, they are prized by the Lord Jesus and they are now in a place of exaltation. Does that make sense? So when James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, only the gospel, only the gospel can do this. It re- think about what other world religions say. Think about what other philosophies say. The gospel comes on the scene and says, you, poor, lowly, despised, the one that was kicked out, God loves, God gave his own son to bring you in and brings you up to a place of exaltation. He's calling the impoverished believers in Christ to go, see beyond this present circumstance, see beyond this present suffering, see beyond what you're going through right now. I want you to find your identity in Jesus and I want you to boast. I want you to enjoy. I want you to take pride in. I want you to take glory in the fact that what Jesus has done is he has made you a co-heir. With him, your space in heaven is secure. Your identity is something that you have received. Boast in your exaltation. The world kicked you out, and the world told you weren't good enough, and the world told you this, and the world told you that, and Jesus comes on the scene and gives you a new identity. I want you to exalt in that. Wow. Wow. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Anybody resonate with that this morning? For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is what Paul's getting at, okay? Uh, this is, and this, by the way, isn't just things that were written in Scripture. This is what was uh, reported throughout the, the, the first century church and the second century. Look at this next thing. This comes from uh, a, a pistle, an epistle of Diognetus. It was written in 130 AD. And listen, to, this, is, this was just a report on how Christians were living. This is unbelievable. The Christians dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others and they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. It was common in the first century in many places to just discard unwanted children, throw them in the the trash dumps. Christians were known for going to the garbage dumps and actually taking those children and raising them. 
so they don't destroy their offspring. They have a common table. Oh, I love this. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Wow. That was revolutionary. That was revolutionary in Roman culture to practice chastity and purity. They're in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on the earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are spoken of, evil spoken of and yet are justified. And they're reviled and they bless. They're insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. And they are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it up in one word, what the soul is to the body Christians are in the world. That was in the news. That was the report. Lowly brothers glorying in their exaltation, in their poverty making many rich. That is so awesome. So the gospel story is a story that sweeps your story up into it, giving it meaning, new power, new focus, and direction. So before we move to the next verse, some might be wondering, well, shouldn't the wealthy brother serve and help the lowly brother? Is James going to get to that? And he does. He does in a number of places. But I'll just mention a few verses from Scripture just in case you haven't heard these. Matthew 25, as often as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Galatians 6.10, do, all, do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Or Paul, Paul, has found, Paul collects a, 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 a offering for the Christians down in Jerusalem. You can read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul sets up a mercy ministry for, for looking after widows. Uh, and then in the next chapter, in 1 Timothy 6, he says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. So yes, Scripture definitely speaks to the wealthy brother or sister in Christ to then turn and steward their funds and be generous to those who have less. Absolutely, that is what the Scripture calls of us. So then the next verse So let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the field, he will pass away. Okay, so now the rich guy is called to glory. You're supposed to boast in something? Like, well, yeah. What's he supposed to boast in? Well, James says, boast in his humiliation. That that must have rung the first century reader's bell. Certainly rings ours, doesn't it? Let the rich glory in his humiliation. What is he talking about? he's talking about the same gospel that brought the lowly up is the same gospel that brings the proud down. Those who would find identity in their material gain, in their material possessions, in the power, in the luxury that comes with having a lot. And can I just, we have a lot, okay? 
Like when we look around in Seattle, and just, I'm just been reading several commentators this week, um, if you have access, one commentator said it this way, if you have access to James's letter, you would be in the, the rich category. So, so James says, for those of us who have, do we, he says, I want you to glory in your humiliation. So the poor, the poor have death before their eyes often every hour. The rich have to be reminded that our material gain can give us an illusion that we're just going to keep on living forever. And James says, I want you to glory in your humiliation, wealthy man, wealthy woman in Christ. Well, where's the rich humbled? I mean, you don't really hear the word rich and go, the word humble usually isn't nearby in your mind. Why? Because they have everything. But he, so where's the wealthy humbled? In the same gospel that brought the poor up. That when a rich man goes before God, the rich man is just as poor as the poorest person that's ever walked the earth. That there's no rich person walking into heaven today because you looked at justification and go, I can buy that. Justification's not for sale. The Holy Spirit is not for sale. The resurrection is not for sale. Your atonement is not for sale. The church is not for sale. The Bible's not for sale. Heaven's not for sale. Your identity's not for sale. What God did, you can't afford. Bezos can't buy it. Gates can't buy it. You can't buy what Jesus offers freely. And the only way for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven is to beat on his chest like the man in Luke 18 and cry out for God to have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the only way. So lest you look at your bank account and go, I'm pretty good. Look at my life. God must be pretty pleased with me. That is the wrong place to look for your righteousness. That is not a place of salvation. And in fact, scripture will tell you that can be, can be, not always is, but can be a place of damnation. I'm just telling you, this is as clear as it gets over and over again in the scripture. That you don't look to what you have in the bank and then assume that God must feel a certain way about me. None of this is for sale. And if it were, you certainly couldn't afford it. We're talking about the Son of God. So in Luke 18, there's the man, the the, the sinner and the Pharisee. You remember the story? The Pharisee goes, they both go to the synagogue to pray. And the Pharisee says, God, thank you that I'm not like this guy. I, I pray a lot. I fast. I give. Thanks that I'm not like this guy. Look at this <laughs> ragamuffin looking up into heaven in his pride. And then the poor man beats on his chest, won't look up into heaven, and just says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I broke all the rules, and I got nothing. I got nothing. If you'll just have mercy on me. Jesus said, the, the man, that was, which one went home justified? And it was the one that was willing to just own his sin for what it is. And just go, I got nothing. I've, got, I've just cast myself at the mercy of God. I got, I got nothing. Jesus said, that's the guy that goes home justified. 
So for every one of us in here, you have a lot materially. We're brought to that same gospel, that same cross that brings us down. Bend our knees and say, Jesus, I have what I have because you've, you've entrusted this to me. And my job is to respond to you in stewarding what you've given. It's awesome. It's awesome. Amen? We good? We're hanging? Okay. I know it's heavy. <laughs> you should be thankful you didn't have to write this. Yipes. All right. I'm just kidding. But man, it was hard. Um, because like a flower of the field. So he even goes as far as to say, why? 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 Because, because like a flower of the field, he'll, he'll pass away. So there's a reason given to why this, the rich guy is to glory in his humiliation. Um, James is thoroughly Jewish, by the way. Um, his, his, all of his work is saturated in the Old Testament wisdom literature, in particular Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. James, this, that was, if, if you know, I don't know, I, my guess is that was his favorite part of the Old Testament because it just comes through constantly. And one thing, this is an Old Testament reference that shows up again and again about the, the flower that passes away and in, in in Israel, in Palestine, all throughout, there are these flowers, these poppies in this particular region that spring up. They spring up. And they're gone within two days. And so he says, the rich man, I want you to boast in your humiliation because like a flower, like one of these flowers that spring up, it's going to pass away. I want you to boast in the fact that you realize that you're not going to live forever. That though you look amazing right now, and you do, you're not going to live forever. And I want you to live in light of that that reality. And so James reminds us that the clock is ticking, that the sun rises, the scorching winds do come. And so the rich man is to remember that reality. James then concludes this section with a line that sounds like it was lifted right out of the Proverbs. He says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so the, the, look at the four things he lists. The sun rises with scorching heat, withers the grass, the flower falls, or literally the, the, the beauty of the flower's face is destroyed is how that translates. And its beauty perishes. Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar, said this about this verse. The final state of a flower's beauty and glory turns out to be utter ruin, destroyed by the extremities and elements brought, by, brought low by nature cycles. In identical fashion, the rich will fade away even in the midst of their daily pursuits. As with the flowers, their destruction is inevitable and thorough. That he calls, calls the wealthy to have a real sober look at life, to take account to remember that our days are numbered and to not be deceived by, by riches. So the same gospel that brings up the lowly is the gospel that can humble the proud. So listen to this, and we'll close with this. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
That's not a verse about prosperity gospel. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a verse about the gospel gospel. Jesus, son of God, reigning on the throne, stoops down lower than angels, stoops down lower than a king, stoops down lower and lower and lower all the way down to where he became a slave and then died a slave's death. It was borrowed, buried in a borrowed grave. By the way, if you borrow your grave, <laughs> that's awesome. Because he's going to return it. That rules. <laughs> okay. Rises triumphantly from the grave and will take every last person who calls out on him and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. He'll make you wealthy before the throne of God. Not with just dollars in your bank account, but with the spotless righteousness that comes with being united with the Lamb of God. Wow. That's good news. That's such good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your, for your mercy, for your kindness, for your forgiveness, for your acceptance of us. We thank you that your favor rests on our lives by grace and grace alone. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for, for pardoning us as we look to you. Father, I pray for the lowly brother or lowly sister here present today. I pray that he or she would glory, would boast in the exaltation that comes with being united to you. I pray for those who have much, the rich brother or sister, would be brought near to the cross of Christ and remember that atonement is something that is a gift, a free gift that is unearned but is extended to everyone who will confess their sin and place their faith in you, Jesus. Thank you so much for hearing our prayer. We pray this in your good name. Amen.